0: This is the morning service, Long Hill Chapel, Easter, 1986. The scripture for the morning is John twenty-one through 9. The sermon is by Pastor
1: Paul Bubna, Christ Brought Immortality. Let us hear testimony from resurrection morning as it's set forth in the Gospel according to John, the 20th chapter, verses 1 through 9. The Gospel according to John, the 20th chapter, verses 1 through 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead.
0: There are some things about Christianity that tend to be offensive to the world at large. Perhaps you have noticed that. I'm not talking about things about Christians that irritate other people, but things about Christianity. In his book, Christ and Culture, Richard Niebuhr says that throughout history there have been recurring arguments against Christianity. And among those arguments, the one he numbers first is the fact that Christians are animated by a contempt for present existence and by confidence in immortality. In other words, there tends to be about Christians an otherworldliness. To those people who are completely taken up with the glory of man's achievements and the greatness of civilization, they are offended. When they see Christians view civilization as something temporary, transitory, passing, incomplete, and inadequate. And not only is it the fact that Christians look at the civilization of man as something passing, but they're not despondent about it. Rather, their eyes seems fixed on something beyond that they see far better ahead. The Apostle Paul, in what may have been the last letter that he wrote, his second letter to young Timothy, 2 Timothy one ten, he speaks of the grace of God. And he says to Timothy, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. Richard Niebuhr is correct. There is a way that Christians view things that is totally different than all other people. And the cause of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been studying the Gospel of John during this Lenten season. And today I want us to consider how John's experience of Christ's resurrection totally revolutionized his life. He writes this witness about Christ when he's an old man. Most of the other apostles have probably died by then, and it's believed that he was by this time a prisoner in exile upon the Isle of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. Before he dies, he's leaving that generation a witness of his experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reading out of John how that John's life had been so radically changed by his knowledge of Jesus Christ. He was one of 12 men who were apostles, who walked with Christ, and who by their life and death have witnessed of his deity and power, his life and resurrection. Sometimes we ask, what is it about these men, these 12 men that made them world changers? What truth consumed them and shaped them? And I believe John answers that question in the 20th chapter of his gospel, and I would like for us to look at that this morning. I hope you'll have your Bible open. You may want to use a pew Bible there. John chapter 20, where John speaks of his own experience of Christ's resurrection. I was taken by the fact, as I read through John this time, actually several times, I noticed that these last two chapters are the most personal part of John's witness. Now, All the way through, John is an eyewitness. He's telling what he saw. But in these last two chapters about the resurrection, it seems as if John is telling us more about his heart, his own experience, the reality of being part of the events that happened those days. There are three beautiful things that happened around the resurrection that I believe John is saying were something that changed and shaped his life. I would like for us to look at these this morning. The first experience is the empty tomb. The, that, the passage that was read, John twenty one 1-9, describes that. But to catch it all, you have to look at the last part of chapter 19, where it tells that when Jesus died on the cross, it was towards evening, and the Jewish leaders were anxious to have the bodies off the cross because the Sabbath would start at sundown. And who was going to bury Jesus? His disciples had run away. It was then that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And the text says he was a believer secretly, afraid to tell anybody. But on this day he came to Pilate and said, may I have the body to care for it? And he brought with him a man named Nicodemus, the man who had met Jesus by night and to whom Jesus had said, you must be born again. Apparently Nicodemus had become a believer. And these two wealthy men, took down the body of Jesus, wrapped it in strips of cloth in the Jewish way to embalm it, a hundred weight of spices, myrrh and aloes they used to embalm the body of Jesus, and laid it in a nearby tomb since the Sabbath was nigh. And then come these events that John records. Mary of Magdala came, it says, early on the first day of the week, She and the other women after the crucifixion had stayed behind to watch where the body was laid so they could care for it themselves. When she came, she found the stone rolled away. She apparently didn't look inside. But it made an immediate interpretation. Notice what she said. She said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. This is not good news. When Mary ran away from the tomb, she was not thinking resurrection. She was thinking somebody had stolen the body. And when Peter and John, to whom she told the news, came running to the tomb, they were not thinking resurrection either. They were dismayed because this insult had been added on, the tragic death of their Lord. John, notice how John speaks of himself in verse 2. He calls himself the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. What a precious way to think of your relationship to our Lord. They come running to the tomb, and apparently John's a little younger. Perhaps maybe he just jogged more, whatever it was. He got there first. And John stays outside the tomb, leans in and looks, and sees the grave clothes. Now in this passage, three times the verb saw is used. And in the Greek language, there are three different Greek words used that make the story quite interesting. In verse 5, when it says that John looked in, it uses the Greek word blepo, which simply means to, to, physically, to physically look at something. Just saying your eyes beheld what was there. John looked in, what did he see? The grave clothes. That's all it means. And the next verse, it says Peter came, and Peter, unlike John, he's impetuous, he barges right into the tomb. And verse 6 says, he saw the grave clothes, and the word there is thereo, which again means to be a spectator. To be there and to look and watch it. Peter who came barging in, what did he see? He saw the grave clothes, and he saw the napkin that had been about the Lord's head folded and laid aside. And then the text says John came into the tomb, verse 8. And the Greek word there is "ido," which means to perceive and understand. It's like saying, oh, I see, I see, I understand now. And it says John saw and believed. What did he see? Well, the text says that Jesus had been wrapped in narrow strips of cloth and the the means of burial in that time meant yard upon yard upon yard wrapped around and around the body, almost like a mummy. Then over that was put a shroud and a napkin around the face. And apparently what they saw was that the wrappings were not in a pile as if they'd been taken off, but they lay as if they had been undisturbed. And John saw that and he realized that no one had taken the body It had been brought out of the grave clothes. Very interesting in verse 9, did you notice, that this belief was not something informed by the scriptures. John tells us that at that point they did not understand that the scriptures had said that Jesus would be resurrected. They did not believe Jesus was resurrected because the Bible said so. John believed because the evidence was unmistakable. The grave clothes indicated that the body had come right through them and was gone. And the text says John saw it and believed. John had stood at the foot of the cross, unlike the other apostles there on Calvary Hill. He'd watched while his Lord breathed out his last in agony and anguish. He stood there while a Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side and out came a great gush of water mixed with blood. John knew that Jesus had died. And now he stood there in the tomb. And he knew that death had not been able to hold him. John's life had already been radically changed before this. Three and a half years before, John had come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He had left his fishing business with his brother James and walked and followed Jesus for three and a half years. His life was different but not like it was going to be different now. For that moment, John, who all his life had looked at the grave as if it were the end, now realized that the end had been kicked out of the grave. He didn't know all that meant. But he knew his Lord had died, and death could not hold him. The empty tomb had a message for John and Peter and the others, and for us. The empty tomb says to science and philosophy, explain this event. It says to history, repeat this event. It says to passing time, blot out this event. It says to faith, believe this event. And the text says, John saw and believed. That was only part of John's experience. Or in his record, he tells us of a second experience, and that experience is of the risen Lord. It's one thing to to be in an empty tomb and see the evidence that appears as if the person that was there is resurrected. It's quite another thing to meet that person. And John tells in verse 19 of chapter 20 how that that evening, on that same first day of the week, the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the leaders, And he says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Luke tells in his gospel that on that occasion when Jesus came, that he opened the scriptures to these men. It's not saying that he had a scroll that he unrolled and read, but it's saying that knowing the scriptures He told the Scriptures to the men and explained to them for the first time so they could understand it somehow that the Scriptures all through the Old Testament had announced that the Messiah would die and be raised from the dead. So these moments in the upper room were not only moments of joyous reunion, but they were moments of blazing light and revelation, spiritual understanding. Their whole interpretation of the crucifixion that had brought their hearts to despair was suddenly wiped out. In that moment of time, there came to their minds a whole new view of the world, which allowed them to look at their lives and experience with hope and joy and certainty. Morris Irwin of the Alliance Witness, the editor, in this last issue, reminds us how often our interpretations of events see only the dark side. We view it without God in the middle of it, and it leaves us in despair and hopelessness. He mentioned that back in the early 1950s, the whole Christian world was bemoaning the failure of missionary work in China. Missionaries had been in China for over a hundred years, all over China, missionary graves. But in 1949, the communist regime took over in China, drove all the missionaries out and announced that the church would be outlawed and destroyed. In the early 1950s, many were saying, what a waste, what a waste to send missionaries to China. A hundred years of work and labor and graves and what have we got? A communist state with the church being stomped out. Where is God? That's the way it looked in the 1950s. The missionaries had left hundreds of thousands of believers to be stomped out. For 30 years, the bamboo curtain has pretty much closed off to the world what went on in China. And we supposed if there were any Christians left, they must be hiding in caves. And the gospel is about to be snuffed out, but they were wrong. It was the wrong interpretation. It was like Mary saying, They've taken the body, and we don't know where they've laid him. It was the wrong interpretation because the bamboo curtain's beginning to crack. And what's in China are millions upon millions of Christians. Maybe a different kind of Christian than we have in America. People who have walked through fire and difficulty and whose faith in Christ is unwavering. Dear friend, very often the interpretation of the events of our life leave the resurrected Christ out of the picture, and like Mary, we have the wrong interpretation. And that night in the upper room, as Christ opened the scriptures, the understanding of all that they had experienced began to come into a message of hope and deliverance. Thomas wasn't there that night. John tells us, verse twenty-four. And when they went and told him what happened, he said, unless I see nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and my hand in his side, I'll not believe. When they met again the next Sunday evening, it so happens that Thomas was present, however. And John tells us that again Jesus came, though the door was locked and stood among them, and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers here, feel Put your fingers here. Put your hand in this wound in my side. And stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. For a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared among his disciples. He forgave Peter. He commissioned the disciples. He taught them and prepared them for this ministry. These men were going to be world changers. It's true. They had spent three and a half years in the presence of Jesus Christ, and that had done a great deal to shape their lives, but not nearly so much as these 40 days when they had been over and over again in the presence of the risen Lord. They knew he had died, and they knew he was alive. But this is not all that impacted their lives. There's a third part. It's interesting that these first two things you and I cannot experience firsthand. Some of you have been to Jerusalem, and you've been taken to what they believe is the tomb, and it's empty, but that doesn't say very much. You've not seen the grave clothes there, as these men saw. But I want to remind you, we do have the witness of that, a very clear witness. And for those of you who've been to scholarship, you, you need to do some reading about the manuscripts and the witness that we have. For Shakespeare, who lived but the day before yesterday, we have maybe 20 manuscripts, and none of those written very close to the dates of his plays. But for Jesus Christ, we have between four and 5,000 manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts that date very back close to the time that he lived. There is no event in human history so adequately testified to as the events surrounding the life of Jesus Christ. We weren't there, and we can't see the grave clothes, but we have the witness. And we've not seen Jesus Christ physically walking upon earth after his resurrection as these men did, but we do have their witness. But there is a third experience that they had that we can share just as certainly as they did. And that is the experience of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Notice in John 20, Verse 21, as he further records the conversation in the room that night after the resurrection, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now you ask, Did did these men receive the Holy Spirit that night? I I do not believe they did in, in the sense of what happened at Pentecost. But I believe Jesus was announcing to these men that because of his resurrection and because of the victory he had won, he had the power to freely give them all the gifts and grace of God and that the greatest gift that they were going to receive was the Holy Spirit. He wanted them that night to reach out in faith in what he had accomplished by his resurrection that was going to be their experience. It was not until some 40 days, 50 days after The events of the weekend on the Jewish feast of Pentecost that the disciples were gathered again to pray. There were now 120 of them that probably represented most of the believers in the country. And there as they were gathered, the Holy Spirit came upon them, the text tells us in Acts chapter 2. As cloven tongues of fire and the rush of a great mighty wind... And they began to speak in the language of all those present and declare that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he had died for the sins of the world and been raised again from the dead. It was a mighty day. But beyond all that was this reality. Jesus had told these men in the upper room before his crucifixion, I'm going to the Father and it's better for you that I go. Why? His implication was, if I stay here with you, I can be with this person or this person, or with a small group. But I can't be with very many if I stay here. But if I go to the Father, I will pray to the Father, and He will send you another Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees Him not and knows Him. When He comes, He will be with all of you and will be in you. And when He comes, you will fellowship inwardly with the Father and with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, because he has come to fill you and to be with you. Jesus says it's better to go, because then you will not be alone. When Jesus ascended 40 days after the resurrection, the disciples were alone. Or were they? No. No, they were not really alone. Because just at the day of Pentecost, The Spirit of God came upon them and filled them. And that day they knew where Jesus was. They knew he was at God's right hand. They knew what he was doing, that he was praying for them. They knew that God was hearing his prayers because he had sent the Holy Spirit. And there came upon them inwardly the realization that they had never known so fully before that Christ was with them and they would never be alone again. I'm sure they remembered our Lord's last words. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is risen, and they knew they would never be alone again. It is this part of the resurrection that Christians are still able to share today. When we come to saving faith in Christ, when we come to the moment of acknowledging that our own efforts and our own righteousness is inadequate, when we put our faith in the death of Christ on our behalf. The text says of Scripture that we're forgiven and cleansed and made new, and more than that, that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, to set us apart to Christ. So the very same experience that these men had is what Christians today have. They're resurrection people. As someone testified here in the baptismal service last fall, now that I have found Christ, even when I'm by myself, I'm never alone." Very often, Christians are people who make unusual contributions to the suffering and needs of the world. Often they're not pictured that way. Often they're pictured as being otherworldly people who are too busy with their religion to care about the real needs, but that really is not the testimony of history. The testimony of history is when we get our backs to the wall. Somehow, that hope, that otherworldliness that God gives to Christians, enables them to care and to love. But it is true, as Richard Niebuhr says, Christians do have, tend to have a contempt for the present world. They're aware that this world has been bent and twisted by sin; that it's going to be cleansed by fire someday that all the glories of man are going to pass away. And while they appreciate these glories and the heights of civilization, they know this is not the real world. And all of this is because the experience of the resurrection and their eyes that are beholding a kingdom that is yet to come. Christians are people who believe that our Lord reigns at God's right hand today, risen from the dead, that the meaning of history when it's complete is that Jesus Christ shall return and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That belief, and more than that, that, that inner realization of his presence, does change the way that we view life and that we view death. No small number of us here today have laid aside loved ones, and many of us are still in grief. But as Paul says, we sorrow not as those who have no hope. We sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We are citizens of this world, and yet we're very much aware that it's passing away. And we're citizens of another kingdom whose glory is yet to come.